Society of Aesthetics for their continued support of this series. And we're very happy to have Josh Landy here today. Uh, Josh is the Andrew Hammond Professor of French, Professor of Comparative Literature at Stanford, where he's also the director of the Literature and Philosophy Initiative. Uh, he's the author of two books, uh, one of which is on Proust, and his more recent book is called How to Do Things with Fiction. Uh, his interests uh, both in literature and overlapping things in philosophical aesthetics. Uh, and Josh's title today, which I don't have in front of me, is In Praise of Depth or How I Stop Worrying and Learn to Love the Hidden. Josh, over to you. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me here. Um, uh, it's, always a, it's always a great pleasure to come visit you guys. And, um, I, I always learn a lot, so I'm counting on doing so again um, today. Can literary texts ever have hidden depths? Can bad readings ever be superficial? Is it okay to talk this way? Uh, I'll save you the suspense and give you my answer right now. Yes, they can, and yes, it is. Uh, that might seem like something so obvious um, as not to need saying, but in recent years, people have started urging us to change our vocabulary. And not just any people either, but some of the most brilliant, brilliant and prominent, including Toro Moy, Hans Ulrich Gumbrecht, and Alexander Nehemus. Production of Presence, Only a Promise of Happiness, The Revolution of the Ordinary, these are three of the very best books I know on the subject of aesthetics. So why are such important thinkers saying this? And how can those of us who disagree defend our position against their powerful objections? Let's start from an example, one which I'm going to borrow from my friend and colleague, Lanier Anderson. Imagine you're about a quarter of the way into Pride and Prejudice. The winsome Elizabeth Bennet, who's been talking to the highly eligible Fitzwilliam Darcy, has just dropped a remark about running into a certain George Wickham. Immediately, Darcy's expression changes. A deeper shade of hauteur overspread his features, but he said not a word, and Elizabeth, though blaming herself for her own weakness, could not go on. Superficially, everything seems pretty clear here. Darcy's an arrogant kind of guy, and being reminded of Wickham, the mere son of a steward, as he sees him, has only brought his haughtiness out even more strongly. The reality, of course, is very different. Yes, Darcy is an arrogant kind of guy, that much is true, but when Elizabeth mentions Wickham, his changed expression has nothing to do with pride. Rather, he's thinking of the fact that this Wickham recently pursued Darcy's 15-year-old sister, angling for her money, and came within days of conning her into eloping with him. Darcy is perhaps angry with Wickham, embarrassed for his own family, uncertain as to whether Elizabeth knows, fearful for his sister's honor if too many people find out what happened. He's certainly full of emotions, but none of them is auteur. What this means is that the narrator is lying to us, or to be more technical, what this means is that we are dealing with a case of free indirect discourse. The narrator is showing us the scene as it appears to Elizabeth, not as it is in reality. It's Elizabeth who thinks that the expression on Darcy's face is one of arrogance or regret and Elizabeth turns out to be mistaken. I'll get to the theoretical stuff in a moment, but let me just say this right away. There's a more illuminating way to read the Austen sentence, and there's a less illuminating way to read it. The less illuminating way is to take it at face value. The more illuminating way is to see behind its subtle trickery and realize that Austen is setting a little trap for us. I see no reason not to call the face value reading a superficial reading. I, in fact, I did. No, no, where to go. I see no reason not to say that the sentence superficially presents Darcy as getting even more puffed up than he was before, but that, at a deeper level, the sentence turns out to be working very differently. 
the text has hidden depths, and a reading that does not uncover them is itself a shallow one. So um, I'm not going to always mark this distinction between uh, depth and superficiality in a text and depth and superficiality in a reading. Um, they are distinct, but in, you know, in a nutshell, uh, a deep reading of a deep text is a reading that uncovers the depths that are there. So um, this text has hidden depths. Uh, I see no reason not to call them that. Further, I see no reason to think that the hidden depths are there by accident. After all, Austin herself is clearly a big believer in surfaces and depths, and in the superiority of depths of the surfaces. Isn't prejudice precisely a failure to get beneath appearances? And she's not exactly a terrible writer. It's hard to imagine that she simply made a mistake when having her narrator speak of auteur. So when I say that there's a deep reading, I'm not talking about Jane Austen's unconscious or about diabolical social forces operating through her or about tricks that that mischievous demon called language is playing on her. Deep readings are not necessarily readings that laugh in the face of authors revealing things that they were foolishly unaware of. At least in this case, depth is something deliberately created by the author. Austin wants her readers to make a mistake and then, ideally, to go on to correct it. If they are to understand what's really going on, they have work to do. Indeed, getting beneath the surface requires them to do something special, and that's going to be something I'm going to come back to later on. A casual reader might very well read the sentence, misunderstand it, and move on. In order to get it right, she'd probably need to come back to it, bringing her new knowledge to bear on a sequence of words that now looks very different. Austen, interestingly, doesn't do any of the work for us. When Darcy finally tells Elizabeth what happened between Wickham and his sister, Austen does not have Darcy add, and that's why my face changed when you mentioned him to me. Remember back on page 63? Nor does the narrator refer us back to the earlier moment. If we are to amend our earlier error, we're going to have to do it for ourselves. And this brings me to a final point about the sentence in Austen. What changes when we read it correctly is not just our understanding of what it means. It's also our understanding of what it does. Recognizing that Austen is setting traps for, uh, for us like this one, right, in fact, from the very, very first sentence, that famous sentence, should nudge us in the direction of trying to figure out why. Why doesn't Austen just tell us what Darcy was actually feeling? Or if she wanted to remain suspense, why not just say nothing about it? Or just tell us that Elizabeth thought she saw indignation on his features. Anderson's explanation is an ingenious one. The reason we take the sentence for granted, he suggests, is that we already assume that Darcy's an inveterately stuck-up individual. It accords perfectly with our pre-existing picture of who he is. That is to say, it accords perfectly with our prejudice. It is our prejudice that causes us to get it wrong about the sentence just as it's Elizabeth's prejudice that causes her to get it wrong about Darcy. And perhaps the experience of reading the novel is supposed to bring us up short. Perhaps it's supposed to chip away at our self-assurance via the very process of reading. Perhaps it's supposed to help us turn ourselves into more discerning and careful readers, not just of novels, but also of the world. You don't have to agree with Anderson's theory, but I hope you'll admit that it's not superficial. It's, a, it's deeper than a reading that tells us this is merely a love story. And the depth in question, crucial point, is one that is all about effect, not about meaning. Who could deny that Lanier Anderson's reading is deeper than that of the casual reader, or that it brings to light something that, for the latter, is hidden from view? Quite a number of people, as it happens. 
to each decade, in fact, its depth denier. Nehemas in the 80s, Gumbrecht in the 90s, Best and Marcus in the alts, and now Tarl Moy in the teens. Each of them, it seems to me, has his or her own motivation for resisting the plunge. I'm going to compress this talk, uh, part of the talk wildly, but suffice to say for now that Gumbrecht, a Heideggerian, fears what he calls a loss of world. Nehemas, a Nietzschean, fears a slippery slope that will lead us to downgrade the here and now. So think here of the two-world model uh, thought borrowed from Nietzsche. And Moy, a Wittgensteinian, fears an excess of suspicious hermeneutics. In Moy, as in Vesta Marcus, the notion of depth is identified with the idea that the core of every text is something that got in there by accident, thanks to unconscious drives, political prejudices, or, or the sheer nature of language. For people who feel that way, finding the deep essence of a text is thus one in the eye for the author, that simpleton who foolishly thought she could know her own mind, control her words, or write something that was what she wanted rather than what her ideology dictated. I really don't think you can fault people like Gumbrecht for taking on the assumption that artworks are all about sending messages, and that this message obsession deprives many artworks of their true power, leading ultimately to a loss of world. That assumption, that is to say the assumption that artworks are all about message delivery, is indeed a truly catastrophic reduction of the possibilities available to art, which include emotion generation, question raising, defamiliarization, transfiguration, the transmission of a way of seeing, the production of formal models, and the training of mental capacities. You really can't blame Gumbrecht then for taking on the message theory of literature. You also can't fault people, I think, like Best, Marcus, and Moy, or for that matter, Ricoeur and Sedgwick and Felsky, for taking on the hermeneutics of suspicion. They can certainly be forgiven for viewing suspicion as an excellent way to preclude any pleasure or self-knowledge or emotion or transformation a text might have to offer us. They can also be forgiven for thinking that symptomatic reading is too often satisfied with very little by way of evidence. Consider, for example, the rather absurd contortions by which Paul Demand claimed to be revealing Proust's novel as undone by its own language. And they can also be forgiven, finally, for saying that symptomatic reading tends to be rather supercilious, setting itself above those naive authors who don't know what they're doing, and that it frequently distorts artworks, those funny square pegs that it studiously smashes rather tediously into its neat, round holes. Suspicion, of course, is some, sometimes warranted. But it isn't always warranted, and when it shows up uninvited, it is a book-crushing impediment to aesthetic experience. None of this, however, implies that we need to get rid of depth. Depth didn't cause us to believe in messages. Depth didn't cause us to read suspiciously. Depth didn't cause us to smash square pegs into round holes. Other, more local errors did that. And I think we can tackle those local errors on their own rather than taking the sledgehammer of depth denial to the nut of suspicion. Consider again the example we began with. There's a shallow reading of the auteur passage and a deeper reading of the auteur passage. And more broadly, there's a shallow understanding of what's going on in the novel and a deeper understanding of what's going on in the novel, one that takes into account the pervasive use of free indirect discourse. In neither case does the better understanding have anything to do with forces beyond Jane Austen's control. On the contrary, we're dealing with elements Austen deliberately introduced into the novel. And in neither case does the better understanding have anything to do with messages. On the contrary, Austin probably thinks that a reader who comes away thinking they have learned the lessons they need to learn about life and are now wise individuals, I won't name names, 
our readers as foolish as Mary, a character who is surely in the novel only to serve as an implicit warning to us. What's going on in the novel is not the transmission of a message that Jane Austen has to impart to us, and it's not the thwarting of Jane Austen's ambitions by language, ideology, or the unconscious. Austen is achieving exactly what she wants to achieve, namely, to give her readers the opportunity to become a little better at suspending judgment. That capacity, which is a form of know-how rather than a principle, is what's really on offer here for those who get beneath the surface. Yes, beneath the surface, to something deeper. Depth does not have to consist in inadvertent revelations, and indeed, it does not have to consist in revelations at all. What a text is hiding beneath its surface can, as Proust knew, be a vision of the world. It can be a set of tensions, deliberate tensions, designed to spark reflection. It can be an ironic attitude, again, deliberate toward its own contents. Or it can be an intended effect, such as the effect of fine-tuning we found in Austin. Depth is multifarious. It is often deliberate. It is frequently salutary. And there's nothing wrong, it seems to me, with calling it by its name. At this point, we can start to draw things together a little bit. What I've been suggesting is that we should continue to make room for notions of superficiality and depth in our assessment of artworks. There are seven main considerations to bear in mind in this, uh, in this context. First, literary texts frequently, it's an obvious point, literary texts frequently contain or imply features that are hidden. So it's an obvious point, but I'm actually going to come in a moment to somebody who denies that. Um, okay, so features that are hidden. Second, as I mentioned earlier, these features are in no way limited to meanings. They can also be things like hidden complexities and non-obvious intended effects. Third, let's admit it, some of these hidden features are indeed there by accident, just as the suspicious hermeneutes told us. Uh, while many might consider deconstruction to have been an intellectually suspect enterprise, I for one couldn't possibly comment, the same is not true of feminist criticism. To pick one recent example, Alison, Alison Bechdel's exposure uh, of latent sexism in the cinema has become an exceedingly potent weapon in the fight for on-screen gender equality. And similar remarks can be made about implicit racial bias. Ideology critique remains real and important. That doesn't mean, however, that all hidden features in a work got there by, by mistake. On the contrary, and this is my fourth point, many have been deliberately put there by the author. Hence, fifth, reading for depth does not have to be suspicious or symptomatic reading. When we hunt for Easter eggs the author has generously hidden for us, we are not going against her intentions, outsmarting her, or exposing her failures, but doing exactly what she hoped we would do. Now, when elements are hidden deliberately, they typically tend to be important. That's point six. We generally cannot do without them if we want to have the full experience offered by the artwork. And seventh point, they often put the rest of the work in a radically new light. Understanding the auteur passage in Pride and Prejudice doesn't just clear up a local mystery about Darcy's frame of mind. It encourages us to think completely differently about the way in which the novel works and the nature of our reading experience and, indeed, what the entire enterprise is for. We are not, in fact, reading a morality tale in which Jane Austen warns us of the perils of arrogance and blinkeredness. That would be a merry kind of novel, and nobody wants to be merry, least of all Jane Austen. Instead, we are undergoing a process in which we may, if we are alert and willing, give ourselves practice in withholding judgment. To be sure, hidden features do not always affect such a radical transformation of our understanding, 
not all texts have buried features, let alone buried features that make a big difference, and it would be as much of a misreading to impose a deep reading on a straightforward text as to flatten out a complicated one. Still, Pride and Prejudice is by no means an anomaly. And with novels like that, isn't it basically fair enough to say that there are hidden depths? Isn't it fair enough to say that a reading that takes them into account is better than one that doesn't? Let me insist on the last main point. When it comes to sophisticated artworks, hidden depths frequently have to do with the nature and our function of the work as a whole. I might go into a modest proposal thinking that it's a serious and horrifying tract written by the 18th century equivalent of Paul Ryan. Maybe I need a more British reference here. Current Prime Minister? No, not, not, not extreme enough. I'll leap, all right. Um, but at a certain point, unless I'm really obtuse, I'm going to realize the whole thing is a vicious satire. This isn't like a misreading of word or thinking the character has red hair rather than brown. Here, my new understanding transforms my entire sense of what the piece is. It completely upends my hypotheses about what it's for, what I'm supposed to do with it, and why people should bother with it in the first place. I could list endless examples here. Pride and Prejudice, of course, but also The Trial, Plato's Symposium, the Akeda story in the Old Testament, the parables in Mark, and so on. Not to mention allegorical works, like the Narnia books, which some of us may perhaps have been naive enough to read at the age of nine, with absolutely no clue that there was some historical mythical precedent for a kindly leader dying and coming back to life. You know, I confess. Or again, her hermetic writings, which form an extensive and distinguished tradition. It would be a strange result if we ended up denying that hermetic writing ever existed. Our encounters with texts like these, enigmatic texts, ironic texts, and the like, are encounters in which our initial understanding, or the understanding of an uninformed reader, is not just mistaken, but radically mistaken. So I'm compressing wildly here. Um, so uh, if you're interested, we could talk in the discussion uh, period about the difference between synchronic and diachronic depth, depth effects. But the, the, the simple point is that you know, the, the Austin case is one in which, um, in which chronology matters, so sequencing matters. I'm supposed to get it wrong first and then later on notice my mistake. But there are plenty of other cases in which um, the layering is a synchronic affair. And so I'm, uh, either, either I'm seeing both levels at once or I'm just seeing one. Right? So either I'm reading the Narnia stories and just having a great time with the characters, or I'm doing that and also noticing the, the parallels to an allegory. Um, but in either case, what I want to suggest is that the text before us becomes an entirely different kind of object, one that requires a different set of operations, offers a different set of experiences, and is designed to have an entirely different function. The point of the exercise is not even close to what we initially suspected. Why should we say, though, that our, that our hypothesis about intended effect is deep? Why use that term? I should, maybe I should say right now, I, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm never particularly invested in in terms, um, and if there's a better term we can use in place of deep, in place of depth, uh, I'm all over it. Uh, I just don't know one, right? So we, if we want to, I'd be totally happy to replace the term, um, but whatever we come up with as a replacement is going to have to meet certain criteria. Okay, so why why use a term like deep? Well, partly because. Um, the hypothesis that we form about the intended effect is uh, important. 
shedding light on the operations and value of the work as a whole, partly because it's not available to immediate inspection, partly in Austin-like cases because something was blocking it, there being a deliberately placed temptation to read badly. So that's a set of reasons to think that the word deep is reasonably applied in cases like that. But I'd also add another reason, which is going to be my eighth main point. Our hypothesis about what's really going on in a work, about what it's designed to do, what contribution we're supposed to make to let that happen, that hypothesis is of a completely different nature from whatever else we may know or guess about the work. Once I suspect what's really going on in Pride and Prejudice, I don't just have a thousand and one pieces of information instead of a thousand. The difference is not just quantitative, it's a difference in kind. This goes against something Alexander Nehemas tells us about reading. As Nehemas sees it, interpretation is a smooth, continuous line from ignorance to total knowledge. Well, to, I'd say, greater knowledge. Maybe, I, I don't think he would claim that total knowledge is possible. But it's a continuous line from you know, less, less understanding to more understanding. We never make a leap to a new level, but merely form, as he puts it, progressively more complicated, detailed, and sophisticated hypotheses about the text in our hands. And that's why, according to him, it makes no sense to speak of depth. But consider by way of analogy the following scenario. I'm borrowing it from a real work of fiction, but since I hate spoilers, I'm not going to name it. The first rule of essay writing is never to ruin surprises. Scenario. You make a new friend. He strikes you as tough, confident, and free-thinking. You go on to learn that he's resolutely free of materialism, and perhaps the flip side of this, rather slovenly and unhygienic. Then you notice that he's charismatic and confident and sexually successful, and that he has astonishing, almost Pied Piper-like leadership skills, and that his moral standards are questionable. Oh, and then you figure out that he isn't actually real, but is just a figment of your imagination. Is the last discovery on a par with everything else? No. As Kant famously said in response to the ontological argument, existence is not a property. So it's misleading to say that we gradually developed a clearer and clearer picture of our friend, our understanding rising steadily as time went by. Rather, the realization that he never existed was a game changer. It sent our gradually rising uh, graph line crashing through the floor. So too with our overall comprehension of text. As long as I'm just noting additional details, such as the fact that Darcy has a sister, that his first name is Fitzwilliam, or that his mansion is impressive, I guess marriage winningly impressive, um, the difference in my attitude is just a difference in degree. But when I figure out Jane Austen's secret design, my understanding has made a qualitative leap. Mr. Darcy's first name and Jane Austen's artistic project are items that belong to massively distinct categories, as heterogeneous as baby goats and thermonuclear war. What it means for something to have depth is that its explanation requires uh, bringing in something like that, something of a different nature, something that does the kind of work no additional detail could ever do. There is, in fact, a crucial asymmetry between whatever we think of as a text surface and whatever we think of as its depth. For those keeping score, this will be my ninth point. Depths, depths very often explain surfaces. Surfaces, by contrast, do not explain depths. In addition, while surfaces are available without depths, depths are not available without surfaces. It's easily possible, for example, to enjoy Pride and Prejudice for its characters and situations, totally ignoring or overlooking the free and direct discourse and thus failing to realize Austen's ultimate project. But there's no way to notice the free and direct discourse without imagining the characters and situations. That double asymmetry of dependency and explanation, once again, I think, justifies us in speaking of separate levels. You can iron them all you like, but texts will not stay flat.
So to say it again, many texts have hidden features. While some have crept in there by accident, others have been deliberately planted by their creators. They're often vital. And when we discover them, we make a qualitative leap into a whole new way of reading. And the text is transformed, just like that friend of yours who turned out not to exist, into a whole new kind of object. Not everyone, of course, would agree with the picture I have just drawn. Tarl Moy, for example, denies the very first premise. No, she says, literary texts do not include hidden features. As Wittgenstein says about language generally, quote, nothing is hidden, unquote. We may occasionally be confused about something in an artwork, Moy acknowledges, and then later, up, later on clear up the confusion, but this does not mean that anything was hidden from us. When the fog in our head lifts, she explains, we often feel that we should have seen what the problem was all along. For then the solution often seems excruciatingly obvious. How could we have missed it? It was never hidden. We just failed to see it. Note the difference, she adds elsewhere, between assuming that a text is hiding something from us and assuming that the problem is in me. The problem is in me. If there's a fog between me and the text, that fog is on my glasses, not on the surface of the work. All I need to do is wipe my glasses. Or to use Moy's own metaphor, what I need is self-therapy. Once I've turned myself into the kind of person who's able to appreciate this particular artwork, everything will seem dazzlingly obvious to me. Nothing will be opaque anymore. I won't even be able to believe that I was ever confused. Is that really how most cases are, though, phenomenologically speaking? The first time you read Pride and Prejudice, you take the Eurotero passage at face value and think Darcy is becoming even more puffed up. You go back and read it again, and you realize, no, this is a case of narrative misdirection via some brilliantly handled free and direct discourse. But surely you don't berate yourself for having not noticed it the first time. You don't wonder how you could possibly have missed it. On the contrary, you retain a clear sense that practically every reader is going to fall at the same hurdle. Your friends will get it wrong. Your students will get it wrong. Pretty much everyone you can imagine will get it wrong. You yourself may get it wrong the next time, at least temporarily. That's because the trick is in the book, not in us. The fog is on the words, having been blown in there by Jane Austen. It's not, or at least not just, on our glasses, having emanated from our incompetent hearts. You silently compliment Austen on her skill at constructing such an ingenious device, a device precisely of concealment. Of course there's something hidden in there. Jane Austen deliberately hid it. To put it another way, when you read the auteur sentence a second time, its irony becomes something you notice, but something you notice as something hidden. Think here of a situation where you hide a present in the room and watch your favorite nephew eagerly look for it. You know exactly where the present is. Maybe you can even see it from where you're standing, but you see it as something that is not seen by everyone, something that is not immediately visible to everyone. The feeling of hiddenness is a very real and very important part of the phenomenology of reading. The thrill of discovery is a vital engine of narrative pleasure, but without concealment, no discovery is possible. Now you might say, but the words are all right in front of us, smack there on the page before our eyes. How could Austin possibly conceal something even if she wanted to? Behind what? Surely everything is in plain sight. Does, does the text have pockets? Well, uh, plain sight. It is and it isn't. This brings me back to a fact I briefly mentioned earlier, and which I'll now reintroduce as my tenth and final uh, point. I realize, by the way, that some of those points are absurdly trivial, but I thought I would you know, at least name them. Maybe the whole thing is absurdly trivial. Um, so last, last main point. 
Some objects demand a special kind of interpretive work. Think here of Holbein's ambassadors. By now, of course, most of us are very familiar with this painting, but imagine what it must have been like for its earliest viewers. What in God's name, they must have thought, is that rugged, almost baguette-shaped blob in the foreground poking into the folds of the bishop's robes? Did the average spectator have any idea? How many of them gave up trying to figure it out? How many, by contrast, moved their bodies so that they were looking down at the blob from a very narrow angle to the right of the canvas, or looking up at the blob from an equally odd angle to the left of the canvas. Moving to these weird positions is not something we normally do with paintings. Or think, if you prefer, of Vladimir Nabokov's character, Vivian Darkbloom, in Lolita. Vivian Darkbloom, it turns out, is an anagram, as many of you probably know, of Vladimir Nabokov. But how many re readers notice that without having it pointed out to them? Rearranging letters is not something we ordinarily do with the character's name. Or again, think of Mallarmé's Cipure d'Ongle, which famously counts out the numbers 4, 5, 6, 7. To hear them, you have to engage in a highly unusual operation. You have to distract yourself from the meaning of the whole words, while at the same time allowing yourself to notice other words within the resulting pattern of sounds. Uh, for those who don't know this poem, I'm happy to go on at great length about it, um, but I won't now. In strictly literal terms, perhaps, all of these features are visible or audible, but that doesn't mean they're not hidden. You can tell they're hidden by the fact that most people don't see them or hear them. And if most people miss these hidden treasures, it's not because there's something wrong with them. It's because uncovering hidden treasure requires us to dig in an unusual direction. You won't hear those numbers in Mallarmé unless you distract yourself from the meaning. You won't see that skull in Holbein unless you move your body to a bizarre viewing position. You won't pick up the author's name in Lolita unless you start rearranging letters. You don't get to see it or hear it unless you change the way you play the game. To find the hidden treasures, you have to perform a special mental operation. Yes, we can eventually figure out such puzzles. That's right. But so what? Your nephew will eventually find his present too. And that doesn't mean it's not hidden. When it comes to stuff we're looking for, in fact, three scenarios are possible. Sometimes it's right in front of our nose. Sometimes it's hidden away for good, impossible for us ever to see. And sometimes it's hidden temporarily, available to us, but not right away, not without us doing something in order to find it. Mallarmé's numbers, Holbein's skull, and Austin's auteur, all of these fit the third scenario. Tara Moy tells us that the way we figure texts out is just to keep looking. Alexander Nermas tells us that the way we do it is to go sideways rather than down. To understand better, he says, is not to isolate it and to delve into its depths. It is to see how it is like and unlike everything that surrounds it. But I'm not going to see the anagram in Nabokov uh, merely by continuing to look. And I'm not going to hear the numbers in Mallarmé by comparing that poem to other poems or understand Jane Austen's project uh, merely by comparing her work to Dickens and Trollope. You might say I should compare Pride and Prejudice to novels that don't use Friedrich discourse, but how would I even know to make such a comparison if I hadn't already noticed the device? And if all I end up with is a set of comparisons and contrasts rather than a hypothesis about Austen's hidden project, can I really be said to understand her novel better? Fascinatingly and instructively, Toromoy flat out denies the point I just made. No, says Moy, we never need to do anything special with literary texts. 
Quote, critics who think they are uncovering hidden truths don't read any differently from critics who don't. In fact, even the most suspicious critics, Sherlock Holmes and Sigmund Freud, don't do anything special. They simply look and think. Or again, Freud isn't digging under the surface. He looks at and listens to his analyzans' expressions and thinks. Close quote. But one wants to say, what exactly is covered by the thinking part? What is Freud doing exactly when he's thinking as opposed to just looking and listening? I can only imagine one possibility. He's trying to find an explanation for what he sees and hears. And since it's Freud, surely that explanation has to do with hidden parts of the psyche. Surely it involves setting aside how things appear at first glance in favor of secret and insidious homunculi such as the id. In other words, surely Freud is digging under the surface. That's precisely what's going on when he's thinking. The same is true for Sherlock Holmes. Here's Moya Holmes. Quote, it's not that the others look at the surface, whereas Sherlock looks beneath it. It's that he pays attention to details they didn't think to look at. Close quote. It is indeed true that Holmes pays better attention than anyone else. But that's not the only thing he's doing. Surely, like Freud, he's also doing some thinking. And that thinking is surely a search for an explanation. Consider all those times when Holmes points to a detail, uh, sorry, points out a detail to Watson, and Watson has no idea what to do with it. In a case of identity, for example, there's a typewritten signature on a letter, and Holmes says it's conclusive. Of what? asks Watson, completely at a loss. You can notice all the details you like, but if you don't have the ability to put them together into an overarching account, to explain the reasons for them being the way they are, then you're not a detective. Even when Holmes and Watson are noticing exactly the same things, Holmes is doing something Watson isn't. He isn't just paying better attention, he's also looking beyond the appearances to their hidden causes. The connection to art is direct, full appreciation involves figuring out, or at least making a good guess at, the cause of what we see before us, which is to say, the intention of a postulated author. Indeed, the very reason that Holmes does a better job of the seeing part is that he's not just seen. The trick to paying better attention, it seems to me, is precisely having a theory about how things signify. In any scenario, after all, there are infinite quantities of details one could attend to. It's vital not just to look in a general sense, but to know where to look. It's vital to direct one's gaze in the most helpful direction. Holmes doesn't test his clients to see if they can fly unaided. I guess that would actually shorten some of the mysteries. Um, he doesn't check to see that they're breathing air. Instead, he looks at their fingers, their boots, their handwriting. Why? Well, because he has more than a good pair of eyes. He has a theory about the kind of thing that's worth attending to. To know which details can potentially count as relevant, which observations can potentially count as usable data, we need to get beneath the surface. We need to go deep. That, indeed, is why analysts get trained. Indeed, of the three categories of expert Toral Moy mentions here, all receive training in their respective fields. Detectives are trained to detect. Psychoanalysts are trained to analyze. Literary critics are trained to close read. Each of these domains involves a special way of looking. There are specific things it makes sense to look for and specific ways to test for them. Detectives attend to fibers and fingerprints. Film theorists attend to editing transitions and camera movements. Art historians attend to brush strokes and signature placements. Literary critics attend to enjambment and free and direct discourse. I don't know about you guys, but I would never have noticed enjambment or free and direct discourse if I had not been told to look at them. 
If you're not looking for things like that, you can gaze and gaze for 100 years, and you won't get any closer to seeing them. The same is true, incidentally, uh, for parodic works, elusive works, and allegories, where the concealed layers are hidden from some and not from others, as opposed to being hidden now and revealed later. That's the same point about uh, synchronic versus diachronic modes of depth. If you don't get the joke, or don't recognize the intertext, or cannot decode the allegory, then it will never be enough, pace taro moi, just to keep looking. No amount of inspection of Spinal Tap will reveal the existence of an entire tradition of behind-the-music documentaries with their relentlessly repeated topoi. No amount of inspection of the words in front of you will tell you that Snowball is Trotsky, that Napoleon is Stalin, or that Aslan is Jesus. So yes, people who've been trained to read literature are doing something special. When you rearrange the letters of Vivian Darkbloom, that's not just looking harder, that's looking differently. When you hear Mallarmé's sonnet counting out the stars, you're not just listening harder, you're listening differently. You're performing a different mental operation. To sum it all up, artworks frequently contain features that are hidden. These features are in no way limited to meanings, but include things like secret complexities and non-obvious intended effects. Many such features are, are there intentionally, having been deliberately placed there by the author, and accordingly you can read for depth without being a suspicious or symptomatic hermit. Further, there are two different categories of secret feature. There's the kind that you see immediately, where what it means for it to be hidden is simply that other folks don't see it, either because they don't know the intertext that's being alluded to, or because they've never been introduced to the allegorical code. And then there's the kind where it takes a while, because you have work to do, special, unusual work, to make the thing appear, like warming up those invisible ink messages you used to send as kids. In either case, the hidden elements are of a different nature from the non-hidden elements. We are talking about a difference in kind, not just a difference in degree. And the hidden elements tend as well to be highly consequential. They often throw an entirely new light on the nature, function, and significance of the text as a whole, revealing us or our fellow readers to have been radically mistaken about it. They do not always require us to ditch the, the surface. That's another mistake I think that some depth deniers make. But they sure make things look markedly different. And even when their contribution does not upend our entire modus operandi, we cannot do without them if we want to have the full experience offered by the artwork. I personally have no objection if people want to use a different metaphor in place of depth. You can talk of levels or layers or anything you like, but whatever term people come up with, it had better include all these features. Surface reading isn't going to cut it, I'm afraid, and neither is continuing to look, and neither is ever-expanding breadth. They don't capture the phenomenology, and they seem to lead to outlandish claims. Whoever thought that depth was the enemy? There's nothing wrong with depth. The water's lovely. Dive on in. Thanks.